Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, episode 83, coming to you from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. After a couple years of so many of y'all's requesting this topic, I'm finally yielding to the will of the people. Today we're going to begin to trace the history of the great proletarian cultural revolution. We'll begin today with the lead-up to the cultural revolution, and over the period of the next few episodes, however long it takes... We'll go all the way up to the death of Mao in September 1976 and the subsequent fall of the Gang of Four. I thought it would be good to start with the circumstances and events that led up to this watershed in modern Chinese history, and then next time we'll get right into the messy stuff with the Red Guards and the whole madness from 1966 to 1969. What is so fascinating about the Cultural Revolution that makes so many foreigners so interested and curious? Those who follow China all know about the details of the Cultural Revolution to one degree or another. In the West, it's often portrayed in popular media and in pop art as this crazy time in China where everyone dressed up in Mao outfits and wore red armbands and paraded around shouting slogans, waving the little red book in the air and railing against the West and capitalism. The propaganda posters were fantastic, but there wasn't much else about the Cultural Revolution that was nice or positive in any way. The way I see it, nothing good came out of this. There wasn't any hidden silver lining to this event. While the world moved forward, China stood still. And most tragic of all, aside from the death of millions, the horrific suffering and the systematic destruction of so much of China's great cultural heritage... The bitterness endured during this terrible time, even today, brings tears to the eyes of many of those who were impacted by the Cultural Revolution. In this introductory episode, we'll begin to look at where all the various seeds were planted that grew into the Cultural Revolution. Let's get to know the names, who was who, and what happened when, and review all the seemingly innocuous moments that led to a concatenation of events that ultimately led to that fateful day on August 5th, 1966, when Chairman Mao released his own Dazi Bao, or big character poster, that said, Pao Da Siling Bu, or Bombard the Headquarters. Once that happened, anyone who wasn't quite sure what was going on yet suddenly knew this wasn't business as usual anymore. So let's look at the events that led up to that fateful day when the world came crashing down for tens and tens of millions of people. China fell into this dark abyss while all over the West, the 60s were in full bloom. The Beatles released Revolver on the very day Mao unleashed his big character poster on the unsuspecting. And when the Beatles followed up with Sgt. Pepper ten months later in June of 1967, China was experiencing the worst that the Cultural Revolution could offer. The 60s was a period of amazing economic growth, not only in the U.S., but in Japan as well. But China totally missed out. Two of the most horrific disasters to strike China in modern times happened one on top of the other. Both of these disasters that resulted in so much human and economic loss were man-made. You had the Great Leap Forward first and the subsequent famine that followed. And after a period of getting up off its knees, China is once again plunged into another calamity when Mao launched the Cultural Revolution. So from 1958... When the Great Leap started, all the way up until the Gang of Four were dealt with decisively in October 1976, China didn't have it so good. That's 18 rough years. 
Many will trace the origins of the Cultural Revolution to the failures of the Great Leap Forward, but I'd like to go back even further to February of 1956, when something terrible happened to Mao Zedong that changed him. This was when Nikita Khrushchev made his secret speech at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. We mentioned this before in CHP episode 65, Deng Xiaoping part 3. In that speech, Stalin was denounced as well as the whole cult of personality that surrounded him. And if that wasn't enough to raise Mao's blood pressure, Khrushchev also came up with all kinds of ideological innovations to socialist doctrine that just made Chairman Mao's blood boil. In doing all he did, Khrushchev made Mao look bad. That was the end of the special relationship between China and the Soviet Union. In 1959, Khrushchev, by this time not a fan of Chairman Mao and vice versa, reneged on his promise to give China the recipe for the atomic bomb. Then in July of 1960, Khrushchev went and pulled out the 1,400 or so advisors and specialists working with the Chinese on a myriad of projects. And in 1962, when China went to war with India, which we covered in the last episode, rather than stand in China's corner, the USSR adopted a neutral position. So much for communist brotherhood. By this time, Mao tried to outdo himself with one bellicose statement after another about the revisionist ways of his one-time big brother to the north. And in July 1963, when the U.S., U.K., and the Soviet Union signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, Mao saw this as the final betrayal. So the Sino-Soviet split was a trauma for Mao, but that paled in comparison to the failure of his great harebrained scheme known as the Da Chin, or Great Leap Forward. You can listen to CHP episode number four to get the details about the Great Leap. So awful and far-reaching was the devastation caused by the Great Leap Forward that in January and February 1962, Mao had to do the unthinkable and admit he was wrong in front of 7,000 cadres. And when I say he admitted his mistake, it was a very watered-down self-criticism. So starting right about then, Mao stepped back and let the Liu Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping team take over day-to-day affairs. And his comrades didn't let him off the hook so easy. Chairman Mao had done a very bad thing, even though he meant well. The number of deaths has been argued, but it ranged in the millions and perhaps tens of millions. Mao was a sport about it and encouraged his fellow leaders who made up the party establishment to speak up. Ironically, he encouraged them to be like Hai Rei, the loyal Ming Dynasty official who dared to speak truthfully to the Jiaqing Emperor regarding his imperial excesses. Mao's secretary at the time, Hu Qiaomu, relayed this utterance from Chairman Mao to none other than the vice mayor of Beijing, Wu Han, also a scholar on the Ming Dynasty and a respected and celebrated man of letters. Hu Qiaomu suggested to Wu Han that maybe a play or an essay on the life of Hai Rei would be a good thing. After all, the chairman himself had called for this. So late 1959, Wu wrote an article called Discussing Hai Rei. This was right after Peng Dehuai had been purged for daring to speak up like Hai Rei. At the time when Wu wrote the article, no one said anything. It was a non-issue. 
Later on, Wuhan turned this article into a play, and it was called The Dismissal of Hai Rui. Hai Rui Ba Guan. This is important, as we'll see later, although maybe not in this episode. Well, Mao did what he had to do. He had to lay low and take his lumps for what happened with the Great Leap and the famine. But what was happening in Russia was really making him uncomfortable. The way the all-powerful, omnipotent Joe Stalin had been thrown under the bus really unnerved Mao. And then Khrushchev had the audacity to go on and on about how bad this personality cult thing was that Stalin had propagated all those years. The bottom line was that all these lousy things being said about Stalin, in one form or another, could very well have been said about Mao Zedong. So there was Mao in 1962, 63, 64, nursing his wounds, and he began to feel very marginalized. When you have an ego the size of Mao Zedong, it's easy to take everything personal. It was clear for all to see that Mao created this huge mess and all these other guys, Liu Shaoqi, Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, Chen Yun, Yang Shangkun, and many others, they were all having to mop up from their chairman. And when 1964 rolled around, by every account, you could conclude they were doing a fine job. China was clearly coming back from the brink, slowly but surely, and Mao knew it. Many intellectuals in the party establishment became more emboldened with their criticisms of the Great Leap Forward. And to make matters worse, Mao had to be seething when he read how his precious mass mobilization tactics were being completely dissed. And when Mao looked to the north and saw what was happening in the Soviet Union and the magnitude of the revisionism going on up there, at least in Mao's eyes, it really began to shake him up. According to Mao's thinking, a revisionist was someone who abandoned the goals of the revolution and called for special status, especially among the party elite. The other part of revisionism that Mao despised was the accumulation of wealth and goods, the hallmarks of capitalism. He saw a whole new party elite being created in Russia that acted in all respects like a brand new ruling class. Egalitarianism and all the other hallmarks of communism were seemingly being tossed out the window. Mao looked all around him and in his eyes saw the same thing happening in China. Just imagine what it must have been like. His big ego and megalomania aside, Mao Zedong still had enormous prestige in the party and certainly in the eyes of the Chinese people. He was Chairman Mao, practically a god. Wasn't it he who stood on the platform overlooking Tiananmen Square on October 1st, 1949 and declared the founding of the nation? Hadn't he been the great leader who defeated the nationalists? Despite the horrors of the Great Leap Forward, he was still the top guy. And even though he was taking a back seat to the conservative party establishment, Mao remained the man. Then on October 14, 1964, Khrushchev was overthrown in a coup and replaced by Leonid Brezhnev, he of the amazing eyebrows. This really shook up Chairman Mao. All things considered, Mao began to see himself as vulnerable, and he began to look at Liu Shaoqi as his potential Brezhnev. It's hard to say exactly when Mao snapped. He had to be feeling the strain. China seemed to be marching forward after such a cataclysm and 
No one consulted him anymore like they used to, nor did they give him the face he thought he was due. Mao became obsessed with two things that bothered him to no end. First was the obvious ideological backsliding at the top levels of the party. The second was the possible restoration of capitalist practices in the Chinese economy. So by the end of 1964, the storm clouds began to gather. This is when it all starts to happen. Mao was now watching everything very, very carefully, and he didn't like what he saw. I guess now's as good a time as any to introduce the man who I guess we can say made the cultural revolution all possible. Mao had his gang of hardcore sycophants who had their grip firmly on Mao's coattails, but none of them held as tightly as Marshal Lin Piao. Lin was one of China's ten marshals and played a starring role in the communist victory over the nationalists, especially in the northeast of China. Only Zhu De and Peng De Huai outranked him. I'm going to cover the bizarre life of Lin Piao in a future podcast. This guy was weird with all his phobias and alleged hypochondria. Nonetheless, despite all this, he played a key role in China's civil war, and nobody could take his heroic efforts away from him. But man, this guy was strange. Lin's moment came after the 1959 Lushan conference when Peng Dehuai dared to speak up and pointed out the mistakes of the Great Leap Forward to Mao. Mao thereupon got rid of Peng and replaced him as defense minister with Lin Piao. Once he does this, Lin Piao went and at once began to remold the People's Liberation Army into a political force rather than keeping it as Peng did, as a professional military machine. But not only did he politicize the PLA, at the same time he busied himself with the construction of a Mao Zedong cult of personality. And Mao being Mao and all, he was happy to go along for the ride on this one. One of the most famous props that went along with this whole Mao cult was none other than the Little Red Book, the Mao Zhushi Yulu. It was initially written in January of 1964 as an internal PLA document, but was later unleashed on the whole of China. This Little Red Book was all Lin Piao's baby. The book is a whole topic unto itself, so I'm going to skip over the details behind this icon of modern Chinese history. Honestly, no one took notice of what Lin Piao was methodically and quietly doing. The number of party members in the military began to increase at a rapid rate. Then you began to see these indoctrination campaigns where the military was called on to serve the party, and this is where Lei Feng enters the picture. Who was Lei Feng? Well, scholars argue whether he existed at all. He was a foot soldier from Hunan, the province Mao also came from, who served in the PLA and died young and tragically at the age of 22. He became a symbol of selfless devotion to the PLA and later to Chairman Mao. The prop that Lin Biao needed to carry out this whole thing was the discovery of Lei Feng's diary. And let me put the word discovery in quotation marks, because most likely this whole thing was a fabrication concocted by the ghouls in the PLA propaganda department. In this diary that was discovered, posthumously of course, it portrayed Lei Feng as nothing less than a model saint, 
selflessly serving the revolution, the party, and the people. Lei Feng died when some soldier was backing up a truck and hit a telephone pole that fell on him. So he dies, and then lo and behold, they find this diary, and before you could say, Xue Xi Lei Feng, there was a campaign introduced to learn from Lei Feng. The whole learn from Lei Feng campaign began innocently like this, you know, as a means to raise the revolutionary spirit in the army, but later on as a lever to attack those intellectuals and writers whose revolutionary fervor had been diminished to an alarming degree. Lei Feng had pledged himself to serve and to be obedient no matter what. He was portrayed as honest and sincere. And to enhance his image, part of the story was that his parents had suffered horribly at the hands of the Japanese during the war, and for good measure it was said they also suffered at the hands of the KMT rightists and landlords as well. The Lei Feng diary was then introduced into the school system. And when Chairman Mao wrote on the title page, in his own calligraphy no less, to learn from the PLA, it turned the heat up a notch on this whole thing. And let's not forget, as this whole Lei Feng thing gathered momentum, it also helped elevate Lin Biao's esteem as well. Lin Biao was on a roll. Besides the little red book and the whole Lei Feng thing, he also gained no small amount of prestige from China's smashing success in the late 1962 Sino-Indian border war and in the detonation of China's first atomic bomb in 1964. By this time, there was no stopping Lin Biao. His influence also began to extend itself into the areas of public security and into the cultural bureaucracy. And it's in the world of culture that his path crossed with another of the great villains of the Cultural Revolution, none other than Madame Mao herself, Jiang Qing. What a pair these two made. What a couple of misfits they were. But they were able to use their respective relationships to manipulate the chairman to their respective ends. And Mao used them as well. Lin Biao and Jiang Qing had a symbiotic relationship with Mao Zedong. They all fed off each other to further their respective agendas that I guess was the accumulation of power, authority, and prestige, and, of course, the destruction of all their perceived enemies. Jiang Qing makes her entree into the halls of power in a seemingly innocuous way. Mao, with Lin's help, had Jiang Qing join the cultural department of the PLA. I think I mentioned in a previous episode when Jiang Qing, thanks to Kangsheng, entered Mao's life during the Yan'an period, it met with a great amount of resistance from all those comrades who saw nothing but trouble with this B-movie actress from Shanghai. As part of the deal in accepting her, Mao agreed to keep Jiang Qing out of politics for something like 30 years, and he was a man of his word. Up to now, Jiang Qing had remained in the background, but now, 30 years had passed, and she was chomping at the bit to explode onto the scene. And in the cultural department of the PLA, she finally got her chance. It was in this position that she began to mingle a lot with all these radicals down in her old stomping ground of Shanghai. You see, Shanghai was a major hotbed of radicalism. Beijing wasn't. Beijing was where the party establishment was, and these guys had no time for these leftists and their strict Maoist ways. 
All this time, the leftist wing of the party had been frustrated at being marginalized. No matter how much they tried to break into power or make their voice heard, they just couldn't do it. The Zhou Enlai's, Liu Shaoqi's, and others were very successful at showing them respect, but at the same time, keeping them at bay. So they all remained down in Shanghai, stewing in their own juices and waiting for their moment. When Jiang Qing entered their world, things began to look up. Already by 1963, Mao believed he had shown enough contrition for the Great Leap Forward, and after laying low all this time, he began to grumble about the revisionism going on and being treated like a dead ancestor. In September 1962, during a speech at the 10th plenum, Mao began calling for more class struggle. He wasn't in power, but as I said, no one out-trumped Mao when it came to national prestige. So although he wasn't the top guy in the government anymore, everyone still had to listen to him. So Chairman Mao tried to get his way by launching what became known as the Socialist Education Movement. I guess you could call it a mini dress rehearsal for the Cultural Revolution. It began in the rural areas as a campaign to combat corruption amongst all the cadres down there. In May 1963, Mao issued what was known as the First Ten Points. This is where Mao speaks his mind and raises serious concerns about all these revisionist tendencies happening in the party. He wanted the peasants, both poor and middle class, to judge and rectify the errors of the party. It was in this document that Mao said he had two main concerns. First was how collective farming and the communes had been shut down and things were returning to business as usual in the countryside. Second was the increasingly bureaucratic ways of the party. So the socialist education movement began innocently enough as a campaign to restore collectivism and reestablish the communes as the basic unit of control in the countryside and also as a mechanism to turn up the heat against the rising tide of corruption at the local level. Mao also aimed to put some pressure on this bureaucratic elitism that he saw in the top ranks. I guess you could say with this socialist education movement, Mao was starting to push back against what he was seeing and at the same time show everyone he was still the man and what he said mattered. Party cadres were urged to mingle with the masses and get involved with what they were doing. The party leaders were no doubt rolling their eyes and thinking, uh, here we go again. They couldn't just ignore what Mao was calling for. They had to show at least a modicum of enthusiasm. As far as stamping out corruption and learning from the peasants, they weren't against this at all. But they had some serious concerns about how Mao was going about doing this. When the chairman started talking about mass mobilization campaigns and class struggle, it made them shiver. China was finally on the road to recovery after the worst disaster in PRC history, something due entirely to Mao Zedong-style mass mobilization. And now that Mao was doing the same thing again, the conservative party leaders couldn't help but think what the negative impact might be on the newly recovered agricultural productivity, not to mention what it might mean to their own control of the levers of power in the party. September 1963, in response to Mao's Ten Points, Deng Xiaoping issues the later Ten Points, which was followed up the next year with the revised later Ten Points by Liu Shaoqi. 
Basically, they took Mao's 10 points and just peeled away all the most radical parts. This, of course, didn't make Mao very happy. Ultimately, what came out of this was a document known as the 23 Articles. With the 23 Articles, things began to get serious. If the party leaders were wary of having to deal with Mao and his radical thinking, now they were seeing for the first time Mao was up to something, and it wasn't good. Not for them, anyway. So the socialist education movement went from being a rural-based movement to one aimed squarely at the party elites. When Mao said the movement was now focused against, quote, those people in authority within the party who were taking the capitalist road, it amounted to an unspoken declaration of war. Mao was being loud and clear about, quote, boldly unleashing the masses and not being like a woman with bound feet. So with this, the battle lines began to be drawn. But honestly, in the end, the socialist education movement turned out to be nothing but a big waste of time and didn't accomplish much of anything. The conservatives dodged a bullet and were able to thwart Mao once again. But everyone was beginning to feel a little on edge, despite their success in lifting China up by the bootstraps after such a disaster as the Great Leap. In the meantime, while all this was going on, Lin Biao was busy doing his thing in the military. The Maoists and the party, not getting anywhere with the top leaders in Beijing, began to see the PLA as the only way to shake things up and get their way. Lin Biao continued to organize the PLA as the role model for the whole country as far as you know, exhibiting the revolutionary values that Mao held so dearly. So the leaders were very wary of Lin Biao and began to suspect what he was up to. Lin Biao was remolding the PLA into a political machine and less of the professional fighting force that the now-disgraced Peng Dehuai had worked so hard to build from scratch. In 1963, when the Learn from the PLA and Learn from Lei Feng campaigns were launched, it was like a coming-out party for the new and politically improved People's Liberation Army. It's all funny and seems rather innocent now, but back in 1963... It was very serious stuff. So now that the new and improved politicized PLA was making its voice heard, the time had come to be more overt in their efforts to muscle in on the government and put some pressure on the Liu Shaoqi faction. The PLA propaganda goons worked tirelessly to keep fanning the flames of this growing personality cult surrounding Chairman Mao. Already, hundreds of millions of little red books had been printed and distributed, Posters of Mao were being hung up everywhere. In early 1964, already Mao was calling for intellectuals to be sent down to the countryside to learn from the masses. In June 1964, Mao also called for a kind of rectification campaign in the party that sort of echoed what he tried in 1957 with the anti-rightist campaign. But try as he might, Mao's efforts were continually thwarted by the forces of Liu and Deng. The minimum amount of lip service was paid to these calls from Mao, just enough to make it look like they were listening, but all in all, like what happened with the socialist education movement, they diluted everything sufficiently enough so that nothing Mao called for gained any traction. By the time 1965 rolled around, 
it was clear there was a full-blown power struggle going on, and it became increasingly more difficult to keep the Maoists marginalized. That was all about to change. At a Politburo meeting in January 1965, Mao first called for a so-called cultural revolution and appoints Peng Jun to chair a five-man group, or group of five it was also called. The five were Peng Jun, Liu Shaoqi, Wu Lengxi, Lu Dingyi, and good old Kang Sheng. Who was Peng Jun? We're going to focus on Peng Jun in the next episode, but for now, he was one of the good guys. He was firmly in the Liu Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping faction, and later on in the 1980s, he was one of the eight immortals who we discussed in the recent Bo Yi Bo episode. In 1965, Peng Jun was the all-powerful mayor and party boss in Beijing. Lu Dingyi was the culture minister. Wu Lengxi was in charge of the People's Daily, the mouthpiece of the party. These four were all like-minded. Kang Sheng, on the other hand, he was anything but a pragmatist. For all his political life, he was always on one side and one side only, and that was the side of Kang Sheng. And as far back as the Yan'an days in the late 30s, he attached himself to Mao Zedong, and forevermore his fate was tied to Mao. What he was doing in this group of five, who knows? You see, actually, Peng Jun had always gotten along with Kang Sheng, despite the sleaze factor associated with this one-time secret police boss. But as we'll see, Kang totally, completely, and thoroughly stabs Peng Jun in the back. And when it was all over, Peng Jun had to have been wondering why he trusted Kang Sheng in this five-man group. Peng was tasked with carrying the ball to get this whole cultural revolution idea going. It was created in response to the growing criticisms from Mao about what was going on at the top levels. Mao felt he had been patient and had given everyone a chance to answer for all his concerns about these revisionist tendencies creeping back into the top levels of the party. But Peng Jun, being a pragmatist and all, did his best to make it look like he was giving Mao face and taking this seriously, but basically he didn't do anything. Tried his best to send this whole thing into oblivion. The group of five was simply Peng's way of humoring Mao to show he he was taking it seriously. Specifically, the five-man group was called upon to discuss and conclude on the matter of Vice Mayor Wu Han's play, Hai Rei, dismissed from office. I'm going to focus on this in the next episode, but scuttlebutt going on about this concern whether or not this play was an allegory for Mao's dismissal of Peng Dehuai at the Lushan Conference you know, during the Great Leap Forward. The parallels between Peng Dehuai and Hai Rei were obvious. But on February 3rd, 1966, Peng submitted his report, and in it he concluded that this matter of Wuhan's play, since it was not political, should be left to the scholars and the historians. So just like they did with the socialist education movement, The pragmatists in power were able to make it look like they were all over this thing, but between the foot-dragging, obfuscation, and general lack of enthusiasm, the group of five, despite all their meetings and discussions, reported to Mao, ain't no bourgeois culture as far as we can see. So in the next episode, we're going to pick up in early 1966, and as we'll see, 
Mao puts his foot down, and when he did that, the ground is going to shake like never before, and we'll see everything begin to quickly spiral out of control. Some of you might be wondering, what was the big deal about this upright, honest Ming Dynasty official, Hai Rui, and the play that Beijing Vice Mayor Wuhan wrote about? Why did I have to go mention this, and what does this have to do with anything? Well, next episode, we're going to look at why... Wuhan's play, Hai Rui Ba Guan, became the centerpiece of this political struggle that Mao was having with China's top leaders. Today in this episode, I just wanted to lay the groundwork and explain the events that ultimately led up to the fateful year of 1966, the official start of the Cultural Revolution. Next week, we'll see the emergence of the Red Guards, the Gang of Four, the rallies in Tiananmen Square, and the decimation of the top leadership. So I hope you'll come back for more. I'm uploading this episode from the Business Class Lounge here at Hong Kong International Airport. I'm sitting in the hard seats, but, you know, being Marco Polo Club and all, Cathay Pacific gives me a, you know, little bit of face and lets me sit in the lounge here. This is Laszlo Montgomery thanking you all for listening and downloading and hoping you'll join me next time for another dare I say, exciting episode of the China History Podcast.